Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, is a book that has a lot of blood in it. From near the very beginning, there are connections within the story of Scripture, within the plan of God, to blood. And at times, again, especially if you read the Old Testament, it can become almost almost stomach-turning to read just how much blood is shed in the pages of Scripture. You may think all the way back even to Genesis chapter 3, where mankind fell into sin for the very first time, and God, through His grace, provided those clothes, those animal skins for Adam and Eve to cover themselves with, reminding us that there was a sacrifice made. God either killed an animal to make those animal skins or symbolically did, did so to bring them those skins. But there was a connection right from the very beginning for covering of sin, atoning for sin, and blood. You read through the Old Testament, you can't help but be struck by the number of sacrifices that are, were made by people of faith, reasons of faith. Abram, or as he's more well known to us, Abraham, offered so many sacrifices, for example, that throughout the years, a lot of writers have said that you could follow the the journeys of Abraham by the smoke that came off of his altars. You can just follow that trail throughout the, the story of Genesis where his life is found. But maybe very few, if any, accounts in Scripture show us more clearly the connection of blood and the plan of God than what we see in Exodus chapter 12. And I hope you'll have your Bible open to that chapter tonight. That chapter where the Passover feast or the feast of the Passover begins. Tonight, we're bringing our month, the month of April, the emphasis of it on Sunday evenings has been on baptism. We're bringing that emphasis to a close. And so it may seem strange to go, for one thing, just back to an Old Testament text, but also may seem strange to go back to a text where The word baptism is nowhere to be found anywhere in Exodus chapter 12. But I want you to, if you've been here the last several weeks, I want you to put your your mind on for a second. And remember that back in March on Sunday evenings, our emphasis was on the cross of Jesus. And then we follow that up this month by focusing on the subject of baptism. And so our lesson tonight is really meant to tie those two concepts together. To sort of bring both months together in, in hopefully, what I hope is a, a neat bow. It may fall apart. I don't know, but hopefully a, a neat bow. We've taken the title of our lesson tonight from a song that I guess every time I've ever sung it in worship, it has been used as what we've commonly call an invitation song. Where the question is asked, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I want us to take tonight to examine what's found in Exodus 12. 
to see what happened all those years ago there. And then hopefully make a connection with why we want to end these couple of months on the cross and on baptism by going all the way back to where the Passover feast was first celebrated. If you're in Exodus 12, I want you to notice whipping in the first place, the setting. What is it that's going on? We won't spend a lot of time here, but hopefully you'll recall that the setting for the text we read together a few moments ago is near the end of when the children of Israel, God's chosen people, were in Egyptian bondage. In fact, it's very near the end of that time as those very famous ten plagues have just about run their course. In fact, if you just back up a couple of chapters, maybe flip back one page in your Bible to Exodus chapter 10, you remember that in that chapter, the ninth plague had occurred, the plague of darkness. And each of the previous eight plagues had shown God's power, but also you remember that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had not let the people go. He would not let the children of Israel leave Egypt. But as that plague of darkness is hovering over the land of Egypt, Moses boldly goes before the king, before Pharaoh, and states, we are leaving. In fact, in the midst of that, he somewhat famously says in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 26, not a hoof shall be left behind. There is nothing of the children of Israel that's going to be left in Egypt. We are leaving and we're taking everything with us. But still, Pharaoh's heart was hard. And so in that same chapter, Exodus of Exodus 10, down in verse 28, he told Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses then prophetically responded in verse 29, as you see, as you say, I will not see your face again. And it's following that conversation that God made it clear that the final plague would be the one that would break Pharaoh's will and he would let the people go. In Exodus 11 and verse 4, we're told that the 10th plague would be the death of the firstborn. And specifically, we're told it would be across the entire land of Egypt, from the household of Pharaoh, even all the way down to the cattle. Every firstborn, and I'm told by those who study the Hebrew language, it's specifically the firstborn son. Every firstborn son would die. But I want you to think for a moment about that setting, just knowing those facts. Because you have a great tension here, do you not? Because on one side of what's going on, you have a time of death and destruction. That's what's coming. The death of the firstborn. There is going to be death. There's going to be destruction. But then the other side of that tension is, it's a time also of deliverance from that. That God is going to give His people a way out of, we'll study in a moment, a way out of that tenth plague. A way to avoid that plague coming upon them should they be obedient. So there's a tension there. But then also, as we study, as we read our scripture reading a few moments ago, did you notice in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 2 that we're told there that this event that God is saying is getting ready to happen would be for his people the beginning of months and the first month of the year. In other words, start your calendar now for, for the Israelites when this would happen. And so besides just this time of tension of death and destruction on one side and deliverance from that on the other side, it's also a time for his people of a new beginning. It's a dividing line. Now, there's a lot more we could say about the setting, of course. But for our purposes tonight, those three facts are enough. And I want you just to keep them in mind. Keep the the tension in mind, but also this new beginning in mind. And so let's with that go to our text. And let's think specifically about the sacrifice itself. 
Because it's the actual instructions that God gives that make this powerful, but also what begins to connect the lesson to the concept we began with of blood. There are two things, among many others we could name, that I want you to notice about the sacrifice itself. First of all, notice the requirement that was given. Each household was told to take a lamb and to kill it. Now, what was done with the blood, we'll get to in a few minutes. But for now, just notice the specific nature of the requirement as God gave it. Because in Exodus 12 and verse 5, the people were told that that lamb was to be without blemish. The word there literally means entire and it means perfect. I want you to hear a couple of other verses where the same Hebrew word is found. The one it's translated as without blemish. Just listen to these verses. One of them is in Job 37 and verse Uh, uh, 16, where Elihu was speaking and he's speaking of God and he says, do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? The word perfect there is the same word we have in Exodus 12, 5. You may also recognize the same word from Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13, where we're famously told that the sun stopped for a whole day. The word whole is our word. Now, I take the time to point that out because what God was doing and saying this lamb was to be without blemish was he was being absolutely specific in what he wanted these people to give, what he wanted to wanted them to bring as a sacrifice. It had to be whole. It had to be entire. It had to be without blemish, whatever words you want to use. And so we could then rhetorically ask, well, Would a sacrifice that was less than perfect make any difference? I think all of us would say, of course it would make a difference. What if that lamb had a broken leg? Or what if that lamb had been broken with some kind of of deformity? Would that have been good enough? I think all of us would, would shake our head no and say, of course it wouldn't have been. The requirement was a male, perfect, whole, entire lamb. But also as you consider that sacrifice... Consider that it was also a replacement. This was not just an arbitrary sacrifice. God was not just telling his people to make this sacrifice just to fill in some time before something else happened. He wasn't just giving this sacrifice saying, you you just do that because I just want you to do that. Instead, remember that setting again. Every firstborn male in the whole land of Egypt was going to die. The lamb was the replacement for the dying of the sons. Which was one reason why the lamb was to be a male as well. But the blood of the lamb stood in the place of the blood of their own son, should they be obedient. Now that's a little bit gory for us, I understand. It is to me too. But it reminds us of just how seriously those who heard these commands from God through Moses would have taken that that command or or this series of commands. If you were a person who had faith in Jehovah God and you had seen those previous plagues, don't you think you would have taken this command seriously? Even if it meant killing that prized lamb out in the family pasture, a family flock. After all, it was the life of your own son that you would have been saving by going through with that particular act. But also, and this is not on the screens, I also want you for a moment to think about this simple fact. Can you imagine the sounds of that afternoon or that evening as all those lambs are sacrificed? The last verse that Brother Dan read for us a few moments ago, verse 6, ends by telling us that these animals, these lambs were to be killed 
at twilight. And your Bible may have a footnote or a center column reference or something that correctly states that the original Hebrew phrase here is kind of odd. It literally is between the two evenings, or actually more literally, simply between two evenings. That's what the Hebrew is. The phrase is a little bit confusing, and I tried to look in several scholars who could understand these things, but I think Albert Barnes has it correct in his commentary when he writes that the time would have been what we would call sort of mid-afternoon to early evening, something along those lines as, as far as the custom of the people. But then in his commentary, he wrote these words. He said the Hebrews, quote, slew the lamb immediately after the offering of the daily sacrifice, which on the day of Passover took place a little earlier than usual between 2 and 3 p.m. Keep that in in mind. I don't want to read too much into the text. But if Barnes is correct and others agree with it, if Barnes is correct and all of these lambs were killed, slaughtered at even close to the same time, can you just imagine the sights, the sounds, just the experience of it all? It's awful. But keep in mind, it's a sacrifice to save. It's a sacrifice where the lamb or the blood of the lambs, is taking place. The blood of real people. That was the sacrifice. But we go on beyond our scripture reading tonight to notice in the third place, the salvation. Why is this called Passover? It wasn't because a lamb was sacrificed. It was what was going to happen next. In fact, if you keep reading in Exodus 12, down in verse 7, We're given this requirement. The people were given this requirement. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, the upper part of the doorpost, of the houses in which they eat it. Now, the blood would have been taken and put upon probably some kind of branch. Some scholars suggest maybe a hyssop branch, for example, that sort of looked like a almost like a broom and and smeared or sprinkled on the, the sides. The King James Version says it would have been struck on the doorpost, but the word literally just means to set something or put something. So we don't know how it would have actually been done, whether it was smeared or sprinkled, but whatever it was, something was taken to take this blood and sort of just place it on the doorpost itself. But again, the question becomes, why? Why kill all of these lambs and smear or sprinkle or whatever it was, this blood all over the frames of these doorposts? And the answer is found in verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And of course, hopefully you're familiar with the fact the text goes on to tell us that that's exactly what happened in Egypt that night. Death reigned in Egypt, but wherever that blood of the unblemished lamb had been placed at the right place around those doorposts, there was life, there was salvation. What brought about that salvation? What brought about the destroyer not destroying, not killing the firstborn in those homes where that blood was was spread? In reality, it's a combination of things. It's a combination, first of all, of the grace of God. God was under no obligation whatsoever to provide his people with these commands to follow, with this way out. They hadn't been perfect 
They had sinned for many, many times. And God was under no obligation to say, here's your way out of the 10th plague. But in his grace and in his love for his people, he provided the way out. And so, yes, the grace of God helped provide them with the way out, with the salvation. But also, of course, it also took the obedience of the people. Do any of us actually think that if there had been a family of the Israelites who had heard this command from God given through Moses and said, I can't do that. I'm too busy tonight. I I just don't like blood all that much. That, That wouldn't look good. Do any of us actually believe that they would have survived, their firstborn would have survived this plague? Of course not. God had given them specifically what He wanted. Out of His grace, He gave the command, but they had to obey the command in order for it to take effect in their lives, for salvation to come along. And someone says, now... I've read Exodus 12. In fact, I've been in Bible classes since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. We've studied Exodus 12. You might have been in a vacation Bible school sometime where you ate the, the Passover meal. You, you've, you've done all this stuff. And you go, well, so far, all we've done is rehearsed a Bible account that I've studied my whole life. What in the world does this have to do, for one thing, with me in 2018? But what in the world does this have to do with tying together the cross and baptism and our lives? With that in mind, think about the symbol. It all comes clear with one small statement that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is church discipline. I fully understand that. But as Paul is is discussing that very difficult thing, he appeals to Christians to be faithful even in that very difficult task. And one reason he tells them to be faithful to something that's difficult is at the end of 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 where he writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover. Or as the English Standard Version translates it, He is our Passover lamb. Just consider the same things we've talked about in the lesson tonight from Exodus 12 that make that statement not only true because it is true, but absolutely awe-inspiring. Consider the setting. What was the setting for the first Passover? It was a a dividing line of life and death. That tension of life and death. It was a beginning of a new time. It was a dividing line for God's people. When we come to Jesus and we we realize that He is our Passover lamb, isn't the same thing true? It is a tension of life and death. What did Paul write? And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And then he would come down later in that same argument and he would write, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. The Passover lamb, Christ, is our dividing line between death and And deliverance, death, and life. But we also have a new beginning. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Whereas the Israelites had a physical setting of 
death and deliverance and, and a new beginning, you and I spiritually have that same setting. Christ, the Passover lamb, is that dividing line between spiritual death and spiritual life. And being in him is the beginning of a new life. The setting is the same. But what about the sacrifice? It's an, ac- it's an accurate picture of Jesus being our Passover lamb. Think about the requirements. The lamb in the Old Testament had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect, whole, entire to be the kind of sacrifice that would please God. What about our Passover lamb? Well, you look at what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and it tells us that we are ransomed or saved with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. We can trust that Jesus is our Passover lamb because he was sinless, he was perfect, he was whole, he was entire. But also think about the fact that he replaced us. We sometimes may say that it should have been me on the cross because sin, my sin, separates me from God. I made the choice to sin. But then Jesus took my place. He became my replacement. And so in the very same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, we read about Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we or you have been healed. We sometimes sing the words, it was all because of God's amazing grace. Because on Calvary's mountain, he took my place. We don't sing any truer words than those. On Calvary's mountain, he became my replacement. He is our Passover lamb. What about the salvation? In Exodus 12, it took God's grace. He laid out the plan, though he was under no obligation to do so, for his people to to be saved, delivered out of Egyptian bondage, and to avoid that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And the same is still true of our salvation. God was not required to send Christ. He wasn't required to do anything. But Ephesians 2.8 is still true. By grace, you have been saved. He is gracious enough to provide us a way out. But also... In Exodus 12, the people had to be obedient to what God had laid out. They had to take that blood. They had to sacrifice the lamb in just the right way and then take the blood and put it where it was supposed to be and all of that in order for it to be true. And the same is true in our day and time. There are a lot of people who say we're only saved by the grace of God. There's nothing you can do to, to, to earn salvation. And folks, I agree with that. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. None of us could ever do enough to earn salvation. But folks, there are things we must do to appropriate the grace of God into our lives to gain salvation. And that's why we read, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 That's why we read, The one who believes and is baptized, that's the one who will be saved. Mark 16.16 It's why the very first time the gospel was proclaimed by one of the apostles, it was said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, by the authority of Jesus Christ, for the remission of, the deliverance from sins. Those statements, folks, are from God's grace. He was under no obligation to tell us what we must do to be saved or that we could be saved, but He did. But we must obey in order to find that salvation, to gain the salvation that He offers. We mentioned... 
at the beginning of our lesson that the Bible is a book that has a lot of blood in it. The Old Testament is filled with sacrifices. And as we said, sometimes your stomach can almost churn because of just how what you're reading. If you really let it, your mind get around, it's how much was being sacrificed and how often all these things were done. And it's almost gory at times. But have you ever noticed that once you come across the story of the cross, the account of the cross... The Bible is nearly silent on the subject, other than hearkening back to what had been done. The book of Hebrews and other places points backward to that. You no longer have animals being slaughtered. You don't see people bringing lambs to the priest and bringing those yearly sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And the question becomes, why? In Exodus 12, we're introduced to that feast, the Passover. The lamb was slaughtered on that day. Likely in the afternoon, and the blood was spread, spilled to appease God. The fancy word for that is propitiation. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was killed on that day of the year. He breathed his last, and he gave up his spirit, and he took my place. As we would reckon time at about three in the afternoon. Between the two twilights. But ladies and gentlemen, he was not just some animal that was sacrificed to save a firstborn son. He was also the son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Literally, His unique and only Son. Jesus could not be replaced. Jesus could not be sacrificed for. Jesus had to be the sacrifice so that you and I would never have to shed blood in that way again. It's why the Hebrews writer could talk about the blood of Jesus and say that we now have our hearts sprinkled clean Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. But the final question becomes, what in the world does that have to do with baptism? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Where do I contact the blood that was shed on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago? When I know that the blood of our Passover lamb is what appeases God, is what brings salvation, don't you know I want that blood in my life? I want that blood covering me, if you please. Where does that happen? It happens when, by faith, we contact that blood in the waters of baptism and we are in Christ. That's why the New Testament says we are freed by His blood. Revelation 1.5 It's why the New Testament says we are washed by his blood. First Peter 1 verses 18 and 19. It's why Saul was told him, why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. We are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. One last question. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And if not, take care of that tonight and come while we stand and while we sing.